We're going to pick up tonight in Jeremiah chapter 45. Although we won't finish the book of Jeremiah until next week, we're very much in the final section. Uh, in fact, after chapter 45, the rest of the book of Jeremiah is probably best understood as an appendix. And so as we'll see tonight, uh, there's a private word for Baruch, and then we have what's called the Book of Nations, and the Book of Nations goes all the way to the last chapter, and all we have in the closing chapter of Jeremiah is actually an edited version of another passage of scripture, 2 Kings chapter 25, that's just been kind of put as a final conclusion on the book. But the, the story of Jeremiah's life and ministry, the narrative, if you will, of the book of Jeremiah ends and ended in chapter 44 with Jeremiah in exile with other Judeans in the land of Egypt uh, where he maintains the same message and ministry he has his entire life. Chapter 45 actually acts as a pretty good transition in the appendix because, again, it focuses on Baruch. Now, Baruch is pretty easy to identify as being an assistant of Jeremiah's, but how that relationship came to be how Baruch saw it for himself and his story, if you will, that leads all the way to the version of the book of Jeremiah that we're reading today uh, is relatively unstated. We just don't know much about it, but this little insight here does help us connect a few dots. Look at chapter 45, verse 1. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. And so notice in the chronology, we're going way back again before the days of Zedekiah all the way to King Jehoiakim. Um, and here, as he was writing the book, remember the one, the scroll that was brought before Jehoiakim that he picked apart with a penknife? Around that same time, we find a message that's just for Baruch as he finds himself being ushered into this new role um, as being Jeremiah's assistant and to some degree, Jeremiah's public representative, right? Jeremiah's uh, keeping a low profile. It's Baruch who takes the scroll and reads it in the temple. It's Baruch who's pulled aside by the king's cabinet. Um, Jeremiah is in hiding. But during this period... Jeremiah, from the Lord, gives Baruch a message. Thus says the Lord God of Israel to you, O Baruch, verse 3, You said, Woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I'm weary with my groaning, and I find no rest. Thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built, I am breaking down, and what I have planted, I'm plucking up, that is, the whole land. And so we have to read it a little bit between the lines here. But we see that Baruch is distraught. He's frustrated. Uh, in fact, he seems to be feeling like Jeremiah did at times. Um, his pain here seems to be the pain of the reality and the inevitable coming destruction of Jerusalem and Judea, as it often was 
for Jeremiah. That's why he says he's weary with his groaning and he finds no rest. On top of that, he says, the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. So the reality is painful enough, but now he has a part to play in it that's even more difficult. But it's interesting how God responds. Look at verse 4 again. Thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, behold, what I have built, I'm breaking down, and what I have planted, I'm plucking up. That is the whole land. At the very least, verse 4 here reads as a remembrance that God is sovereign, especially, maybe doubly so, over Israel, and he's totally within his rights to destroy what he's built. But more than that, I think the sentiment, the underlying uh, feeling of the text is important as well. God isn't just saying, I built it, I'll break it. He's saying, don't ever forget that I'm the builder and the planter. Don't ever forget that I have an emotional investment in these people. And that's something we've seen throughout the book of Jeremiah as well. In fact, we've seen this almost melding or melting together of God's heart and Jeremiah's heart, where sometimes it's hard to tell who it is who's crying about the destiny of Judea. And so God comes off here uh, as reiterating to uh, Baruch and say, look, don't think that I'm not emotionally invested in this. Don't think that I don't care. Remember that what I'm doing here uh, is my pain as well. But there's an, another point that's given here. Look at verse 5. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. And so there's a slight rebuke here. And again, we're missing the content of what was really going on in Baruch. What great things was he seeking? Why was he going about them? Somehow that deepened his pain. I would suggest to you it's one of two things. Either he was just your average, ambitious, younger human. And the destruction of Jerusalem, Judea, exile, that was just going to ruin his plans. Whatever future he had, whether it was in the cabinet of the king or in the marketplace making, a, making good money or whatever it was, his entire legacy was about to be disrupted. The entire stability was about to be thrown off. But there is another possibility here. We are not told how Baruch came to be aligned with Jeremiah, but what if Baruch sought Jeremiah out? What if he was one of the one few people who recognized Jeremiah really was the prophet of God and like we saw with the eunuch uh, last week, wanted to align himself with Jeremiah? What if he came and said, hey, Jeremiah, is there any way that I can help? Could it be that he saw in aligning himself with Jeremiah being part of the restoration of Judah, being part of the hope what if he could be the divine message carrier of the hard truth, yes, but the message that would lead to the repentance of Israel? Could it be here that what he sought for himself was the greatness of being God's messenger? One of those two things is clearly at work here, and God's rebuke is so small. He says, do you, think, do you seek great things for yourself? Don't. That's it. That's all that he says here. It's a good reminder to me um, of, of two things. Obviously, one of the things that Baruch is bemoaning and wrestling through here is the fact that he's not in control. Whatever it was, he had plans, and God has changed those plans. And that's always difficult. 
But the truth is, we can trust God with his plans. You know, remember that the Bible says about God that he is capable of doing beyond what we could ask or think or even imagine. Remember that when we weigh who is the good and who is less good in the relationship between God and people, God always wins. Goodness is inherent and pure and untainted. He's a light with no darkness. His plans are not just happening because he's stronger than us, although that is true, but also because they're better, and he knows they're better. They're even better for Baruch. They're even better for us. But it also may be here that it is uh, an appropriate reminder for those who step into serving the Lord with wrongful ambition, who step into serving the Lord with slightly tainted motives. I always think of the um, Broadway play and then later, uh, later Hollywood film Amadeus, when the court composer, the one who has to be the official musician of the land when Mozart suddenly shows up on the scene, uh, Solieri, he prays in the story since he was a little boy that God would make him glorious. And if he does, then he will make God glorious with beautiful music. And he'll give all of his industry and his chastity and devote his entire life to the service of God. And here comes Mozart from nowhere, from nobody, with no ambitions or plan, and has more talent in one finger than Salieri has in his entire career. And he despises Mozart for that reason. But the glorious thing is that God always honors our deepest desires. We're a mixed bag of motives as human beings. And I always worry about those who are constantly questioning and seeking to purify their motives as if everything has to be in right alignment and then God can use me. No, God, almost with a sense of humor, is totally capable of letting us in with our slight misunderstandings and then showing us reality. Think of the disciples rubbing their hands together all the way to, the, all the way to Jerusalem thinking, we are going to be enthroned. We are going to be empowered. Jesus constantly reminds them otherwise. He tries to rebuke them along the way, but he never sends them off. He knows they're going to get it eventually. Baruch gets it eventually. It, the, part of the reason why he can't seek great things for himself here is because in the way that he imagined, they're not happening. Right? He, he basically is saying, Baruch, why don't you give up on your ambitions and focus on mine? In fact, notice uh, there's another way that we should think about this because actually what we're reading here this sudden frustration that Baruch might have for, if you'll forgive me the turn of phrase, playing on the losing team. Jeremiah knew from the beginning, right? Chapter one, the beginning of Jeremiah's call. Jeremiah, I'm calling you to a stubborn people who will not listen. They will attack you. They will persecute you. They will stand against you, but I will strengthen you and you will remain standing. But Baruch doesn't have that personal insight although he probably wrote it down at some point as he recorded for Jeremiah. Notice how that is um, given specifically to Baruch here. Look what it says. Behold, halfway through verse 5, I'm bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord, but I will give you your life as a prize of war in all the places to which you may go. He says, it's not all bad news. 
I will be with you. I will preserve you. He extends the promise he made to Jeremiah, the one of protection until the ministry is over, to Baruch. He gives him the same deal. He lets him in on the same thing. And so he's going to see this thing through and nothing will stop that. And this is another thing that seems to be consistent with the way that God works because God's plan spans across generations because it moves from one person to another. I think we can assume here that as Baruch is assembling this appendix here and putting together the final, the final state of the entire book, he's probably doing so because Jeremiah has passed on. And so he sees himself as a predecessor to Jeremiah's ministry, as a preserver of what God has done. But obviously, we know as well, reading this, that he also has a significant part to play in a present tense ministry the distribution of this book, a future tense ministry making up the entirety of Jeremiah for the work of God. And so we see these generational transitions all over the place, Elijah to Elisha, Moses to Joshua, Paul to Timothy, right? Over and over we see these things, and it is striking how often we find God showing up and reiterating personally the same promises he gave to the predecessor. It's really interesting to read through Genesis and wait for God to show up in the lives of Abraham's son and grandson, because he does. And when he does, he gives them the promise he gave Abraham. He takes the words that he spoke directly to Abraham. Now, recognize Isaac's heard the story, right? His entire birth is a miraculous provision that God has provided. He knows the promises God has given Abraham, but God still feels the need to make them specific to Isaac. Jacob, the same way, all the more surprising because Isaac's a pretty mild-mannered character, right? In fact, he doesn't really do a lot in the book of Genesis except get married and dig some wells. But Jacob is very proactive in his life and not in a good way. He tricks his brother out of the birthright. He follows his mother's advice and steals the blessing from his aging and blind father. And then he runs away from all of that into another land, uh, you know, and then on the way, Jacob, the heel catcher, Jacob, the thief, staying in the wilderness of Bethel because there's no home for Jacob anymore. He's burned all his bridges. And suddenly he sees a bridge to heaven. Angels ascending and descending, and God speaks to Jacob. And what does he do in that? He takes the promises that were Isaac's, and he gives them to Jacob. And so he does the same thing here. And, you know, we have a lot of ways of communicating this, that one generation can't live on the bread of the last generation. But what I want to focus your attention on tonight is the recognition here that God sufficiently desires to reveal himself to the present and not just record his past revelations. For the present. Here he speaks a word to Baruch, a word that Baruch needs to know, that actually puts him in legacy with Jeremiah. And you might go, well, that's not very applicable for me, but don't forget what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. He says his disciples are going to be in good company with people just like Baruch and Jeremiah. Because just as they persecuted the prophets, so also they will persecute you. So rejoice. You're in good company. You're playing for the same team. And it's a little bit meta 
it's a little bit deep. But the fascinating thing is, even as we open this word right now that was spoken by God through the ministry of Jeremiah, recorded by Baruch for Baruch and Judah originally, again God's word reverberates to us, speaks to us. It's a fascinating thing, but if you watch how the New Testament talks about the Old Testament, they don't always leave it in the past. Nobody makes this clearer than the author of Hebrews. Just read the first few chapters and watch how the author of Hebrews engages with Scripture. He says things like, for the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes a passage out of the Old Testament. Not said in the past tense, is saying in the present. In fact, remember one of his great applications from chapter 4. He says, today is the day of salvation, therefore don't wait He takes the word in the Old Testament, brings it into the present, and says it's for the here and the now. That's what Baruch is experiencing here, as the old promises given to his predecessors are made new promises for what he's facing today. What follows after chapter 45 is what we call the Book of Nations. You may remember all the way back in Jeremiah's commission. Jeremiah was told he would be a prophet unto the nations, But we haven't really seen that very extensively. We've seen a handful of references to the nations. You may remember that the king threw a revolt planning party and Jeremiah showed up and made all of the kings who were present drink the cup of God's wrath very visibly and tangibly. There's those places, but here is where everything he said about the nations, the neighbors around Israel and Judea are gathered and put together. And appropriately so, because as we will see, God's not just bringing judgment through Babylon upon Judea, but on the entire region, on the entire uh, area, God is consistently bringing judgment on Egypt and Ammon and Edom and the Philistines. Uh, And so chapters 46 through 49 is just a roster of nations. And the message is basically the same. Judgment is coming. Its name is my servant Babylon. And it's coming upon you because of your false worship and your trust in yourselves and your wealth. And so much of the imagery, much of the language is the same language that we read for Judah. Now we just see it's a bigger mess. And then he does the most significant thing because there's one last nation that isn't one of Judah's neighbors. It's Babylon. And he saves the longest section for the judgment of Babylon for the last. Because God's not just going to use Babylon as a instrument of his judgment, he's also going to judge the instrument afterwards. And so as much as this is a passage of judgment for the people of Judah, It's also a passage of hope. One of the things I want you to notice as we read through this is not only is it going to constantly cite the same causes, idolatry, pride, and wealth, for God bringing judgment upon these people, but we're also going to see there's a couple of different outcomes depending on the nation. Some of the nations are basically eradicated at this point. Others, Jeremiah tells us nothing about what happens next, and a handful, only four in the list, does he take the time to say, but they will be reestablished, but they will be resettled. 
And this is really a striking thing because remember, Jeremiah is a prophet of Judah. His ambitions, his intentions, his focus has been on God's people. But there are messages even of hope for some of the nations represented here. There are messages of restoration for some of the nations here. Now, Isaiah takes it even further. Writing a hundred years before Jeremiah, he sees, for example, a future for Egypt and Assyria, which is not just one of restoration, but incorporation into God's own people. But collectively, what happens here in Jeremiah as this judgment is walked through uh, is Israel finds both representations of the restoration that they can expect as well as a differentiation between God's people and others, whereas God still has grace in the tank, if you will, for Judah. We'll see both of those things. Look at chapter 46, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. Verse 1 there operates as a heading for everything that follows all the way through chapter 51. About Egypt, first target. Concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, and which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So notice, this happens prior to Jeremiah's relocation to Egypt. A couple decades prior to Jeremiah moving in there. The very first time Egypt faces Babylon, they lose. But Jeremiah had already spoken that that was going to happen. He had already laid out that that was the case. And remember, that's significant because Jehoiakim was looking for support. He thought Egypt would be the deliverer that would keep him out of Babylon's midst. But Jeremiah, apparently in his ministry during that time, had said, that's not how this is going to go down. So notice what he says, verse 3, Prepare buckler and shield and advance for battle. Harness the horses Mount, O horsemen, take your stations with your helmets, polish your spears, put on your armor. We can almost get the cadence here, but in the Hebrew, this is, this is staccato in nature. It's monosyllabic. It's arm yourselves, mount your horses, right? It's, it's pointed over and over again. And so the first thing we see here is an army readying itself for battle. And then verse 5, why have I seen it? They are dismayed and they've turned backward. Their warriors are beaten down. They have fled in haste. They look not back. Terror on every side, declares the Lord. Do you get the feeling of what happens here? It's, it's similar to that old radio broadcast of the Hindenburg, right? Where it starts off with victory and glory and applause and they're, they're buckling up and they're ready and they're excited and then suddenly the tide turns and it's a completely different event. Oh, the humanity right? That's the picture that he paints here. What's happened? They face Babylon. Verse 6, the swift cannot flee away, nor the warrior escape. In the north river, north by the river Euphrates, they have stumbled and fallen. Who is this rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He said, I will rise, I'll cover the earth, I'll destroy cities and their inhabitants. Okay, two things here. One, about the metaphor he's using here. The way irrigation worked classically in Egypt uh, was just the Nile itself. 
and the Nile had a tremendous seasonal habit of flooding. And so the way that they would irrigate their crops would be by utilizing that flood in a productive way. And so the image here is of the Nile doing its thing, but it's not just a powerful and mighty river. It's actually Egypt itself. And notice what Egypt said to itself. I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy cities and their inhabitants. Why are they standing up against Babylon? Not to defend their own borders, but because they want to be the next Babylon. Because they think, you know what, you think you're so great, but we will be greater. And so there's a sense here where, uh, where it's their ambition that has caused them to mount their horses and go to war. Verse 9, advance, O horses, and rage, O chariots. Let the warriors go out, men of Cush, and put to handle the shield, men of Lud, skilled in handling the bow. All of those people are not Egyptians proper. They're mercenaries from the southern countries beneath Egypt, where Ethiopia is today, who have been hired to help. Verse 10, that day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. So they think it's a day of victory, a day of Egypt, but Lord ha- uh, the Lord has different plans, and so what they can expect is judgment. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of the blood, for the Lord of God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. And so the image there is, as if God had called a sacrifice. But what's on the altar? Egypt's army. Verse 11, go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. In vain you've used many medicines. There is no healing for you. Again, that's the language that we read about Judah. Is there no balm in Gilead, Jeremiah asked? Why are your wounds untreatable? But now he borrows that imagery and he applies it and he says it's the same for Egypt. In fact, one of the reasons why why it made no sense for the kings of Judah to trust in Egypt was because they were just like them. They were in the same place under the judgment of God, and that is inescapable. Verse 12, the nations have heard of your shame, and the earth is full of your cry, for warrior has stumbled against warrior, and they've both fallen together. The word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to strike the land of Egypt. Okay, so the first one is Egypt going off Babylon uh, against Babylon, and that fails. This next message is for the fate of Egypt later. In fact, we've already read about some of this in earlier chapters. Verse 14, declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdal, proclaim in Memphis and Taphanes, say stand ready and be prepared for the sword shall devour around you. Why are your mighty ones face down? They do not stand because the Lord thrust them down. He made many stumble, and they fell, and they said to one another, Arise, let us go back to our own people and to the land of our birth, because of the sword of the oppressor. Call the name of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, noisy one who lets the hour go by. Now there's a play on Pharaoh's name there uh, that only, you know, you can only hear in Egypt, but basically here he says, it's going to be a whole lot of noise and nothing left afterwards, right? He's just all bark but no bite, right, is how we would say it. Verse 18, as I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, like Tabor among the mountains and like Carmel by the sea shall one come. Now, Mount Tabor and Mount Carmel are both in the land of Israel in different places. 
And what makes the imagery here is that they're both basically the only significant peak around. There's hills, hills, suddenly there's Tabor. Okay? There's hills, hills, and then there's Mount Carmel. And so basically, he's painting a picture here of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar as being one without rival. No comparison. You know? And so that just makes Egypt a hill boasting about its might you know, next to Everest. Verse 19, prepare yourselves for baggage. Prepare yourselves baggage for exile, O inhabitants of Egypt. For Memphis shall become a waste, a ruin without inhabitant. And so he says here, you might as well pack your bags in advance because you're going to be exiled just as Judah was. Verse 20, a beautiful heifer is Egypt, but a biting fly from the north has come upon her. Even her hired soldiers in her midst are like fattened calves. Yes, they've turned and fled together. They did not stand for that day of calamity has come upon them, the time of their punishment. And so notice again the way that this is marked on a calendar. As if in heaven, God's got a calendar and a circle date that says judgment upon Egypt. And that day here has come. Verse 22, she makes a sound like a serpent gliding away for her enemies march in force and come against her with axes like those who fell trees. They shall cut down her forest, declares the Lord, though it is impenetrable. Because they are more numerous than locusts, they are without number. The daughter of Egypt shall be put to shame. She shall be delivered into the hand of a people from the north. Now, notice here, um, there's an announcement in verse 25, and then what follows in the rest of the chapter is not actually for Egypt, but for Judah. And so first, verse 25, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel said, behold, I'm bringing punishment upon Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh of Egypt. Okay, so Thebes and uh, Thebes is just the capital of Egypt here. Pharaoh, you know, who is Ammon? Ammon is one of the great gods of the Egyptian pantheon. In fact, just a little bit after this, within the next 100 years, Ammon is joined to Ra, the sun god, and becomes Amon-Ra, if you've ever heard, uh, if you've ever heard the name. Um, and so here we see this judgment is not just on the people of Egypt, but as we've seen over and over again, not merely political, but theological in nature, a combat of the gods. Here, God demonstrates again, like he did in the Exodus, that the gods of Egypt are not gods at all. And so upon Pharaoh and those who trust in him, I will deliver them into the hands of those who seek their life, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. Afterwards, Egypt shall be inhabited, as in the days of old, declares the Lord. And so here we do see a reference to some sort of restoration. After this is all done, Egypt will still be standing, which is what happens in history. Uh, Babylon supplies just enough force to make Egypt realize it's not worth the fight uh, and, uh, and becomes a vassal and a, um, a respecting one, a non-rebellious vassal of Babylon. But notice this whole thing is being told not to Egypt, about Egypt, but to Judah, verse 27. But fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. 
Now, notice how these two messages go together, because they seem different until you remember Israel's history with Egypt. Israel knows what it's like to be in captivity. In fact, they were in captivity under powerful Egypt, and God takes care again of powerful Egypt, but in this is an underlying promise that he can also take care of powerful Babylon. And as we read in another prophecy of Jeremiah, in 70 years, I'll whistle the whistle and you'll come home. And so here, they're not to be afraid of Egypt. They're not to be afraid of Babylon. He will bring them back. He says, I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. Now, we're not given a date for this particular prophecy, but the way it's written makes it clear that this happens before Judea even goes into exile. That's why by no means leave you unpunished has to be added. Again, as we've seen throughout Jeremiah, you will go through this, but you will come out the other side. I will discipline you, but then the discipline will be over. That's what's said here. Next comes the Philistines. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah, chapter 47, verse 1, the prophet concerning the Philistines before Pharaoh struck down Gaza. Now, we don't actually know the exact historical reference of that particular battle. I mean, obviously here, um, Pharaoh strikes down Gaza, but if you think about things today, Gaza, the Gaza Strip, wind it back a little bit, Egyptian property, it's right on the boundary, but we don't know much about this particular battle. Um, but what we do see here is, uh, is basically Egypt on the prowl and the Philistines feeling the heat. And basically what Jeremiah says is, don't worry about Egypt, I've got other plans for you, Philistines. Verse 2, thus says the Lord, behold, waters are rising out of the north, not the mighty Nile River, not out of the Mediterranean, but out of the north, destruction is coming, a flood is coming and shall become an overflowing torrent. They shall overflow the land and all that fills it, the cities and all those who dwell in it. Men shall cry out, and every inhabitant of the land shall wail. At the noise of the stamping of the hoofs of his stallions, at the rushing of his chariots, the rumbling of their wheels, the fathers look not back to their children, so feeble are their hands, because of the day that is coming to destroy all the Philistines. Now, the Philistines weren't original Canaanites. When Abraham lives in the land of Israel, there are no Philistines. While Israel is growing up in Egypt, the Philistines come in, and they come in from somewhere else in the Mediterranean. Okay? Uh, and so they settle in, and it may be why that, it may be why that uh, this passage uses water imagery. In fact, I don't usually present semi-conspiracy theory interpretations of things like this. But while I was studying this passage, my wife and I watched a documentary on the city of Atlantis as James Cameron and friends were looking for any historical records that would align. And we do know from historical records of a community, a relatively well-civilized one in the Mediterranean that was built around a volcano. And you can go see this island now. There's nothing left. Um, <clears throat> but when the volcano went off, it didn't just ruin the city but it caused a pretty significant tidal wave throughout the Mediterranean that affected all those people. And so maybe, and I haven't even checked the timeline on this yet, but maybe this is what drove the Philistines to resettle in the land of Israel. 
And so maybe Jeremiah is even here drawing from their own, you know, heritage and history and saying, you know how you guys feel about flooding? Well, a big one's coming, right? And so here he says that it's coming, and then notice to cut them off from Tyre and Sidon, every helper that remains, for the Lord is destroying the Philistines, the remnants of the coastland of Kaftar. That's where the Philistines came from originally, but we don't know where it is. Kaftar is a lost name in history, okay? So there's guesses, but no facts. Verse 5, baldness has come upon Gaza. Ashkelon has perished, O remnant of their valley. How long will you gash yourselves? Those are both major Philistine uh, places. Verse 6, O sword of the Lord, how long till you are quiet? Put yourself in your scabbard, rest, and be still. How can it be quiet when the Lord has given it a charge against Ashkelon and against the seashore? He has appointed it. And so it's as if an unnamed person here speaks up and goes, isn't this a little over the top? When is this all going to be over? But it's really just a way of expressing the fact that God has a determined plan. The plan is total destruction and it will come to pass. And it's during the Babylonian Empire that the Philistines disappear forever. They're, they never recover the, from this. They're never restored. Chapter 48. Concerning Moab. Now, Moab, and after this we'll get Ammon, these are both people groups who are to the east of Israel proper, east and southeast. They are descendants of Abraham's cousin Lot. Uh, and you can read about their origin in Genesis 19. They have been constant enemies of Israel. In fact, even before Israel came into the land, it's the Ammonites and the Moabites who wouldn't even let them pass through their land peacefully and ended up starting a war and Israel in its own defense ended up conquering them and displacing them and taking some of their land. So the two and a half tribes uh, that settle on the east of the Jordan, mostly that's Ammonite land, okay? Uh, and that will become important. But here we're talking about Moab. Now, Isaiah also prophesies about the destruction of Moab and in the same way as if it's going to just create a huge refugee crisis in the western Mediterranean Middle East. Concerning Moab, verse 1, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Woe to Nebo for its laid waste. Kiriathim is put to shame. It is taken. The fortress is put to shame and broken down. The renown of Moab is no more. And one of the things you'll notice here, especially in the reference to Moab, it is chock full of cities and fortress cities. What we see here is not like we saw with Gaza and Ashkelon, which is about two-fifths of the Philistine territories. It's not like Taphnes and Memphis in Egypt, which are the major cities. The list that we're going to encounter of the Moab, Moabites here is so extensive, the majority of them we've never heard of outside of this passage. Okay? It's like he picks up every podunk town along the way to make sure we understand how fully the destruction will be. Verse 2, in Heshbon they plan disaster against her. Come, let us cut her off from being a nation. You also, O madmen. Now, madmen there is a Moabite city and not a description of a crazy person. Just a side note there. Shall be brought to silence. The sword shall pursue you. A voice, a cry from Horonaim, desolation and great destruction. Moab is destroyed. Her little ones have made a cry. For the ascent of Luith they go weeping. The descent of Hanaram. 
They have heard a distressed cry of destruction. Flee, save yourselves. You'll be like a juniper in the desert. Just total isolation, like the pictures you sometimes put on your computer desktop where there's nothing there but just an old dead tree. For because you trusted in your works and your treasures, you shall also be taken. So what is the sin of Moab here? Self-satisfaction in their wealth, right? Because you trusted in your treasure, life is good, eat, drink, and be merry. We're totally secure. We're, you know, at the top of our game. Because of that, God brings judgment. And Chemosh, that's the god of the Moabites, shall go into exile with his priests and officials. The destroyer shall come upon every city, and no city shall escape. The valley shall perish, and the plain shall be destroyed, as the Lord has spoken. Give wings to Moab, for she would fly away. Her cities shall become a desolation with no inhabitant of them. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord with slackness, and cursed is he who keeps back his sword from bloodshed. Now those are strong words, but it functions the same way that the statement at the end of the Philistines uh, judgment passage happened. There it was, sword of the Lord, how long will you? And here it's as if somebody speaks to the invading army and says, if you don't finish the job, you will be cursed. The idea here, though, is just, again, the determined and total destruction that God has planned for Moab. Verse 11, Moab has been at ease from his youth and is settled on his dregs. He's not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. So his taste remains in him, and his scent is not changed. (coughs) The imagery here is drawn from wine, And when you store wine in large casks, you know, the the sediment, the dregs, settles on the bottom. And actually, for most types of wine, that's really normal. But there's a handful of ways of going about wine. Side note, Moab is known for its vineyards, so this is an appropriate imagery. There's a handful that will be ruined by the rot of the sediment. And so what you do about that is you just, on schedule, overturn it. You shake it up, right? And so the idea here is you've been settled on your lees, that's the old King James of this, you've heard that expression, for long enough, Moab. You're comfortable and satisfied and fat and happy. And he says, but that needs to be shaken up. He's going to overturn the wine vat. Therefore, verse 12, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall send to him pourers who will pour him and empty his vessels and break his jars in pieces. Then Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh and the, at the house of Israel, as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. Now remember, the northern tribes of Israel have already been removed by the Assyrians well before this. And so he says, in the same way that Assyria or Israel became embarrassed of their, you know, their calves that they worshipped, one of them being in Bethel, in the same way Moab's going to go through the same thing. Verse 14, how do you say we are heroes and mighty men of war? The destroyer of Moab and his cities has come up and the choices of his young men have gone down to slaughter, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. It's the second time here Jeremiah evokes another nation and says, just so you know who's really in charge, let me introduce you to the king. Not the king of Judah, not even the king of Babylon, the king of kings, the Lord himself. Okay. The king here whose name is the Lord of hosts. 
The calamity, verse 16, of Moab is near at hand and his affliction hastens swiftly. Grieve for him, all you who are around him and all who know his name. Say how mighty, how the mighty scepter is broken, the glorious staff. Come down from your glory and sit on the parched ground, O inhabitant of Deban. For the destroyer of Moab has come up against you. He's destroyed your stronghold. Stand by the way and watch, O inhabitants of Aor. Ask him who flees and, who, uh, and her who escapes and say what happened. Moab is put to shame for it's broken. Wail and cry. Tell it beside the Arnon that Moab is laid waste. Now listen to all of these cities that are referenced here. Judgment has come upon the tableland, upon Holon and Jaza and Mepha and Deban and Nebo and Beth Dilabathim and Kiriathim and Beth Gamel and Beth Maon and Kiriath and Basra and all the cities of the land of Moab far and near the horn of Moab, an image of its power and strength is cut off. His arm is broken, declares the Lord. Make him drunk because he magnified himself against the Lord so that Moab shall wallow in his vomit and he too shall be held in derision. Now, the Bible makes relatively clear that there's nothing wrong with wealth. In fact, some of the great saints of the Bible are wealthy people. Okay? Now, Solomon, his wealth can go to his head a little bit, but Abraham is tremendously wealthy for his time. Um, but notice here that the wealth of Moab, it says, led him to magnify himself against the Lord. In other words, he saw his wealth as being evidence of his goodness instead of the evidence of God. And really the difference between wealth that corrupts and wealth that is good is gratitude. Moab takes this wealth, sees it as his own accomplishment, and like King Nebuchadnezzar in a few years says, look at all that I have built. And effectively God says, wrong answer, right? And he strips him of his wealth to strip him of this false and ultimately destructive idea that he is his own savior, deliverer, God, the master of his own destiny. Verse 27, was not Israel a derision to you? Was he found among thieves that whenever you spoke of him, you wagged your head? So get the picture here. Israel gets sacked and Moab is looking on going, they should have been stronger. They don't have our reserves. They don't have our strength. And he goes, now that you're on the court, they don't speak, talk such a big game. Instead, it's a message of shame. Verse 28, leave the cities and dwell in the rocks, O inhabitant of Moab. Be like the doves that nest in the side of the mouth of a gorge. We've heard of the pride of Moab. He's very proud of his loftiness, his pride, and his arrogance. And the haughtiness of his heart. I know his insolence, declares the Lord. His boasts are false. His deeds are false. See, that's the problem with pride. It's, it's why I love this turn of phrase in the King James. It's why it talks of, of pride being vain glory. It looks like glory. We mistake it for glory, but it's fool's gold. It's empty. It's a vapor. And so here... God says the problem with your boasting is, is not just that you find something great, but it's not as great as you think it is. That you've built your whole life on a shifting sand instead of a strong foundation. Verse 31, therefore I will wail for Moab. I cry out for all Moab, for the men of Kir Hereseth I mourn. 
More than for Jazer, I weep for you, O vine of Sibma. Your branches passed over the sea and reached the sea of Jazer. On your summer fruits and your grapes, the destroyer has fallen. And so Jeremiah speaks for himself here, and he says it's worth weeping over because it really was beautiful and rich and abundant, and now there's nothing. Gladness and joy have been taken away from the fruitful land of Moab. I've made the wine cease from the winepress. No one treads them with shouts of joy. The shouting is not shouts of joy. And so what used to be parties is now funerals. What used to be the sound of celebration is now the sound of mourning. Continues verse 34. From the outcry at Heshbon even to Elia as far as Jahaz, they utter, utter their voice from Zoar to Horonaim to Eglashelisha. For the waters of Nerim have also become desolate. And I will bring an end to Moab, declares the Lord, him who offers sacrifices on the high place and makes offerings to his God. Therefore, my heart moans for Moab like a flute. My heart moans like a flute for the men of Kirherisheth. Therefore, the riches they've gained have perished. Just like we saw with Judah here, we see this strange inflection here where it starts with the weeping of Jeremiah and yet we find sorrow in God as well. It's God who's speaking here. And so his heart moans for Moab. And so there's a sense here where, where God's judgment is, is an expression of his anger. But it's not without his sorrow. He's grieved about Moab. He's grieved for Moab. Verse 37, for every head is shaved and every beard cut off. On all the hands are gashes and around the waist is sackcloth on all the housetops of Moab. And in the squares, there's nothing but lamentation, for I've broken Moab like a vessel for which no one cares, declares the Lord. The version in the ancient world of biodegradable, right, was just a pot you no longer wanted, so you just threw it outside and it broke, right? That's, that's how, what has happened to Moab. Verse 39, how it is broken, how they wail, how Moab is turned back in shame, so Moab has become a derision, and a horror to all that's around him. For thus says the Lord, Behold, one shall fly swiftly like an eagle and spread its wings against Moab. The city shall be taken, the stronghold seized. The hearts of the warriors of Moab shall be in that day like the heart of a woman in her birth pains. Moab shall be destroyed and be no longer a people because he magnified himself against the Lord. Terror, pit, and snare before you, O inhabitant of Moab, declares the Lord. He who flees from the terror shall fall into the pit. He who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For I will bring these things upon Moab, the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. Now we'll look at that last section in just a second. But this is a really long passage that really only says one thing. Why does Jeremiah take the time here to just make this so detailed and be so redundant and use so much reiteration and say it in so many different ways. I think the main reason is because that's the nature of pride. This possibility is impossible for Moab. And so the only thing Jeremiah can do to combat that is to just lay it on thick and continue to push. They're deaf to this message, you know, because it could never be. You must be mistaken. You must have gotten the wrong address. Have you seen what's going on over here? Have you not seen our wealth here? Haven't you seen all of our soldiers, right? They're not even listening. They're just talking back so often because they're so proud. 
And so Jeremiah fulfills his ministry of almost shouting until Moab's pride runs out of breath to make clear the inevitability of this. And then something really interesting happens in verse 45. Before we read it, I'll tell you what what it is. Um, This passage is stripped directly out of the book of Numbers, chapter 21. Um, In that case, it's actually about Israel's defeat of Moab way, way back. And Jeremiah takes it here word for word and puts it here. And I think the reason is twofold. Uh, One, because, uh, because Moab thought it was great in those days too, right? Israel was no big deal. They were no threat. They weren't any worried about them. In fact, you can go back and read the story, and Moab's acting like a big bully. They're picking a fight that doesn't need to be picked. And the reason bullies pick fights is because they're not threatened by the people they pick on, right? And so Jeremiah takes this language and he reads it forward here, even though, as we'll see in a second, it doesn't actually fit in the same way. But I think another reason why it does this Um, is because there is a finality or a finishing of these things. Another thing that happens in those chapters of Numbers, you may remember, are the prophecies of Balaam. And he has things to say about Moab, and it's here in the destruction of Moab that those things finally come. And so he's he's just kind of reaching close enough to get us back in touch with uh, what's always been the plan, if you will. Verse 45, in the shadows of Heshbon, fugitives stop without strength, for fire came out of Heshbon from the house of Sihon. It has destroyed the forehead of Moab, the crown of the sons of Tumult. That's what happened back in Numbers. Heshbon, Sihon, that's where the attack came from. Here, that's not what Jeremiah is talking about. It comes from the north. It comes from Nebuchadnezzar. But he leaves it intact because he wants to make a point. And so he continues here, he says, Woe to you, verse 46, O Moab, the people of Chemosh are undone, for your sons have been taken captive and your daughters into captivity. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. Thus far is the judgment on Moab. Now verse 47 is a surprise. The destruction is entire and total, and it's round two, right? It's already happened earlier in their history, And then he says, and I I still have good plans for Moab. There will be a restoration. What follows next is the Ammonites. Now again, the Ammonites' land is the land that was to the east of Israel. Uh, In fact, modern-day Jordan is pretty much the land of Ammon. Okay? Verse uh, 1 of chapter 49, Concerning the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, Has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then has Milcom dispossessed Gad and his people settled in his cities? Okay, and so this prophecy is given after uh, Assyria has removed Israel. And Ammon looks around and goes, look at all these pretty good cities and moves into them. Right, and so the idea is, wait, wasn't that the legacy of Israel? Wasn't that where their children were supposed to live? How is it that Milcom, that would be the god of the Ammonites, has dispossessed Gad? Verse 2, therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will cause the battle cry to be heard against Rabbah of the Ammonites. Okay, Rabbah was the capital city of, uh, of Ammon. Today it's modern-day Ammon, the capital city of Jordan. Okay. It shall become a desolate mound 
its villages shall be burned with fire, then Israel shall dispossess those who dispossess them, says the Lord. And so he says here, the ultimate fate is going to be a returning of property to Israel, a resettling of Israel. Verse 3, wail, O Heshbon, for Ai is laid waste. Cry out, O daughters of Rabbah, put on sackcloth, lament, and run to and fro among the hedges, for Milcom shall go into exile. Again, notice who's leading the pack going into exile there, the god of the Ammonites, okay? Because the only true god is bringing judgment on Ammon, and so the false god, Milcom, cannot uh, prevent it. Milcom shall go into exile with his priests and his officials. Why do you boast of your valleys, O faithless daughter, who trusted in her treasures, saying, who will come against me? Sound familiar? Right? Sounds just like Moab. Behold, I will bring terror upon you, declares the Lord of hosts, from all who are around you, and you shall be driven out, every man straight before him, with none to gather the fugitives. But afterwards I will restore the fortune of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. Now, we actually have pretty good biblical evidence that that happens, because you may remember in the days of Nehemiah, when he's rebuilding Jerusalem, one of his enemies, who's constantly plotting to stop him from rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem, is an Ammonite king. Okay? So Babylon wipes out Ammon, and then, like Judah, is allowed to resettle under the Persian Empire. Uh, and so Jeremiah's words here are fulfilled. Uh, the <coughs> chapter 49 here then moves on to Edom. Again, Edom is, uh, is a group of people that live very close to Judah. They're one of their closest neighbors. They draw their roots from Esau, Jacob's brother. And uh, this judgment here... Um, it's going to seem very familiar to what we've read, but it's also familiar to another point or another place in Scripture. In fact, verses 9 through 11, as well as 14 through 16, are directly taken from the book of Obadiah. At least we assume so. It's possible that Obadiah took them from Jeremiah, but Obadiah is only a very short book. For the majority of it to be the words of another prophet doesn't seem as likely as for Jeremiah to build upon the ministry of another prophet like he does with Hosea in many places. Um, but nonetheless, uh, notice here in verse uh, 7, concerning Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Taman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Okay. Now notice here, that completes the triad that we encountered earlier in Jeremiah. Back in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, let not the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. But let the one who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me. Right? And here we see it's not just Judah that was tempted to boast in wisdom and power and wealth. It was all the nations around them. And with Edom, it was their wisdom. It was their strategy Verse 8, flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan, for I will bring calamity of, es uh, of Esau upon him, the time when I punish him. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? Remember, Israel's law required that they left the edges of the fields intact. And so he says, okay, Esau, if you were a vineyard and the gatherers came through, wouldn't there be something left? And then notice here, if thieves came by night, would they not only destroy enough for themselves? Right? A thief doesn't knock over your house. He just breaks one window. 
But what happens to Edom here? Verse 10, but I have stripped Esau bare. I've uncovered his hiding places and he's not able to conceal himself. One of the things that God is conveying here is if this was just about other human beings, there'd be something left to show. How is God making himself known to Edom? By the complete reality of their destruction. Above and beyond whether it's normal gleaners or horrible thieves, right? Good intentions or bad intentions, doesn't matter. He says, I've stripped him bare. And, and notice what that says. When you're powerful and suddenly you find yourself naked, right? It's to some degree reminding you that you're merely human. The whole reason we wear armor is because our body is not naturally impenetrable, right? In the same way, Edom is stripped bare of all of their false pretension. I've uncovered his hiding places, and he is not able to conceal himself. His children are destroyed, and his brothers and his neighbors, and he's no more. Leave your fa uh, fatherless children. I will keep them alive, and let your widows trust in me. Now, that sounds really positive, but what it's basically saying is you're going to have to trust them to me because none of the fathers and husbands are left. It's actually a strong statement of judgment. And this whole section here is just Obadiah 5 through 6. And then verse 12, For thus says the Lord, If those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, will you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you must drink. He says, If you're looking around and you think some of this was undeserved, how much more should you know what's coming? Right. For I've sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra shall become a horror, a taunt, a waste, a curse, and all her cities shall be perpetual waste. And then we have another quotation, this time the opening verses of Obadiah, verses 1 through 4. I've heard a message from the Lord. An envoy has been sent among the nations. Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise for battle. For behold, I will make you small among the nations, despised among mankind. The horror you inspire has deceived you and the pride of your heart. Okay, so again, they thought so greatly of themselves, this judgment is to put them back into their place. You who live in the cleft of the rocks, who hold the height of the hill, though you make your nest as high as the eagle, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. Make yourself as safe as you like. Elevate yourself to the heavens and I will bring you back down to earth. What God promises Edom here is a divine reality check, okay? A reminder that he is God and therefore they are not. The job is not open, it's been filled. Verse 17, Edom shall become a horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all of its disasters. As when Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities were overthrown, says the Lord, no man shall dwell there, no man shall, show, shall sojourn in her. Behold, like a lion coming up from the jungle of Jordan against perennial pasture, I'll suddenly make him run away from her, and I'll appoint over her whomever I choose. Okay. Two things there. Notice the image here is of a lion. Earlier it was of an eagle. And to be fair, Assyria used the imagery of a lion and an eagle. Rome loved the imagery of the lion and the eagle. But also so did Babylon. So it's an appropriate image. It's one that you would have found standards, in fact, uh, you may have sometimes seen these lions, gold lions seated with wings. Those come from Babylonian palaces in our history. You know, that's, that's kind of their thing. And so 
Uh, it may be here that there's a reference to that imagery, but it, it's also just predatorial in general. The second thing I want you to notice is he says here, I'm going to put you under the thumb of whoever I choose, for who is like me? Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? Therefore, hear the plan that the Lord has made against Edom and the purposes that he's formed against the inhabitants of Taman. Even the little ones of the flock shall be dragged away. Surely their fold shall be appalled at their fate. At the sound of their fall, the earth shall tremble. The sound of their cry shall be heard at the Red Sea, relatively far away, right? Much closer to Egypt. Behold, one shall mount up and fly swiftly like an eagle and spread its wings against Basra, and the heart of the warriors of Edom shall be in that day like the heart of a woman in her birth pains. And then finally here, the last one that judgment is referenced for. Oh, we've got a few more, actually. Uh, the, the last one that you're familiar with, because we're going to have to explain who the last two are, is Damascus. Concerning Damascus, Damascus is to the north and a little bit east of Israel. Hamath and Arpad are confounded, for they have heard bad news. They melt in fear. They're troubled like the sea that cannot be quiet. Damascus has become feeble. She's turned to flee, and panic seized her. Anguish and sorrow have taken hold of her as a woman in labor. How is the famous city not forsaken, the city of my joy? Therefore her young men shall fall in her squares, and all her soldiers shall be destroyed in that day, declares the Lord of hosts. And I'll kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. And so Damascus, same fate. And then we have Kedar and Hazor. Uh, Kedar and Hazor are both nomadic people, not nations. Okay? This would be like the Arab nomads that still live in this general area, um, that live in the wilderness to the south and east of Israel. Concerning Kedar and the kingdoms of Hazor that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon struck down, thus says the Lord, rise up, advance against Kedar, destroy the people of the east, their tents and their flocks shall be taken, their curtains and all their goods, their camels shall be led away from them, and men shall cry to them terror on every side. So notice it's not cities and fortresses and horses here, it's tents and camels, right? Because they're a nomadic people. Flee, wander far away, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Hazor, declares the Lord. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has made a plan against you and formed a purpose against you. Rise up, advance against a nation at ease that dwells securely, declares the Lord, that has no gates or bars, that dwells alone. Their camels shall become plunder, their herds a livestock of spoil. And so notice here, he pictures the tents as being what we know they are, tremendously vulnerable, right? You can't hide out in a tent from a siege. But they think of it as being a sign of safety and strength, right? Because they're out away from the danger in the wilderness. But here there's going to be real danger. He says, I'll scatter every wind those who cut the corners of their hair and bring calamity from every side of them, declares the Lord. Hazer shall become the haunt of jackals and everlasting wait, uh, waste. No man shall dwell there. No man shall sojourn in her. Then the final... Uh, country here uh, is Elam. Now, Elam is interesting because it is not Judah's neighbor by any stretch of the word. Okay? Elam is actually east of Babylon. And the reason why they are here is intriguing because the Elamites become the archers of the Medio Persian Empire. And they're part of the uprise that finally leads to the overthrow of Babylon. 
And so if you're, if you're reading this as a Judean, very likely, unless you're, you know, involved in the larger politics of the known world, you'd be like, who? But it's put here, as we'll see, because they're going to experience judgment too. Destruction, the Medo-Persian Empire, before they were the Medo-Persians, were the Medes, who Babylon wiped out, and the Persians, who Babylon wiped out, okay? And so this empire was a huge one, but we'll also see a promise here to Elam that ends up being significantly woven into what happens next. Verse 34, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning Elam. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might, and I will bring upon Elam the four winds and from the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them to all those winds, and there shall be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. I'll terrify Elam before their enemies and before those who seek their life. I will bring disaster upon them. My fierce anger declares the Lord. Now, one of the things that this does is it helps us to get beyond just assuming that God is only bringing judgment on Judah's neighbors because of the way they've treated Judah. There's nothing that shows God to be more international and universal in his control and concern as judgment as referencing beyond Babylon here all of a sudden to talk about Elam and their sins that he's bringing judgment on. But also there's a huge similarity here, right? Just like all the other nations, what is the instrument of God's judgment? It's Babylon. Okay. Verse uh, 37 continues, I'll send the sword after them until I've consumed them. And I'll set my throne in Elam and destroy their king and officials, declares the Lord. But in the latter days, I will restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. And in doing so, we also find the destruction of Babylon. And when we come back next week and we get into chapter 50 and 51, that's the final statement that's given here. But remember, that's striking because every people group whether it's Kedar and Hazor or Elam or the Philistines or Moab or Ammon or Damascus or Edom, all of them, Babylon has been the instrument of judgment. And so now the judgment turns to the instrument of judgment and the whole process is complete. Ever since we've been working through this material in the book of Jeremiah, I've been reminded of the flood. Now, back in Genesis, God brings a worldwide judgment upon all of humanity. And he promises, actually, that he'll never do that again. But significantly here, this is a period of worldwide judgment. Not in the sense from, you know, like from China to North America. But the Babylonian Empire, God is judging all the peoples that they conquer. And he's capable of doing so and yet still bringing justice on the injustice of empire and the, on the tyrants, the conquerors of Babylon. But what we see here is that God cares about evil and wickedness and that he's active about doing something about it. The place where we need to be careful is thinking that apart from a thus saith the Lord prophet like Jeremiah that we can just guess what's going on. We should be very humble before we look at what's going on in a nation and say that is the judgment of God, whether it's our nation or another. But we should recognize that God is both capable in his sovereignty and just in his dealings. 
And so whatever the nations do, that's, stuff, that's not stuff that God has you know, delegated and just said, none of my business. If the Nazis are raging, it's just because they're so bad. If we even look at just the dynamics of Europe leading up to that time, we find a lot of comparisons with the nations, fat and on their haunches and, haunches and, and settled in these types of things. God's ways are mysterious in the sense that they are hidden, but they're not incomprehensible. And yet at the same time, what we find in the book of Jeremiah here is, is a little incomprehensible because God's plan isn't finished with this judgment until he brings the judgment upon Babylon, and truth be told, until he brings the restoration to Judea. And so the judgment on Babylon becomes a promise that Judea's promises will be kept because it will be with the end of Babylon that their new beginning in restoration comes about. Let's pray. Father, when we try and just summarize what we've read tonight, it's, it's totality. There's a sense, Lord, where your reign is totalitarian. Now, the truth is, it's not merely that. It is also good. And you are also worthy of all worship and praise. And so there is no excuse, is no justification for our sins. We cannot say that your judgment is unprompted or undeserved. But it is a strong reminder, Lord, that you care about injustice. And you care about the foolishness of human pride. And you care about idolatry. And what's so incredible, Lord, is that deeper than this single outpouring of judgment, like the flood before it, or Sodom and Gomorrah, or, or the other times in history, all of them pale into comparison to the one time, the one historical moment where you dealt with this ultimately. And then you didn't just bring judgment, you bore it. You took it fully and completely upon yourselves, and you did it in a way where all of these nations today, even though they still sit under your judgment, even though they still live as if you don't exist to build their own kingdoms instead of yours, you did it all to offer freely and fully a total pardon and restoration and an invitation into your kingdom. And that's even more incomprehensible than you using Babylon as your instrument of judgment. That you would become not the instrument of judgment, Lord, but the instrument of our redemption. The instrument of our justification that you would take our sins upon yourself and pay the full penalty for our sin. We praise you for that tonight. We thank you for that. And we ask, Lord, that as we go, we would just be aware that in the worst and most broad contours of history, even if we wake up tomorrow as a nation at war, in a new way, in a scary way, uh, that it's not beyond you, it's not outside your control, that it's not unforeseen or unplanned. And for your people, the ones who are forgiven, that is a tremendous hope. And it brings peace even when there is no peace. So I pray that we would live from that place in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.